Welcome People First Leaders. This is your weekly special episode of the Leading People First podcast where you get to listen in on the honest and uncomfortable conversations from our latest Leaders of Equity Allyship and Diversity event. If you are frustrated, saddened, bewildered, disgusted, or feeling any other emotions due to the hate, violence, inequity, and injustice of our society, you are not alone. The Leaders for Equity, Allyship, and Diversity host weekly events to allow leaders to come together, discuss, learn, share, and activate to make a difference in the world. Quick disclaimer that this episode covers topics of trauma, incest, and sexual abuse. And what you're about to listen to is a presentation by Anne Lauren, a previous Leading People First guest who shared her story and answered questions on love consciousness and creating a culture of healing. If you would like to listen to her previous episode, I will link it below in the show notes. If you want to learn more about this group and be empowered to act, you'll just have to join us live next week. We meet every Thursday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern and 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Listen to the end to get more information. Now get ready to come together and lead, and let's dive on in. All right. Well, welcome to lead, everybody. So we're starting off our evening with something a little different, a little appetizer, if you will. All right. So everybody get themselves in a comfy position, close your eyes and breathe really deeply, like breathe right down into your diaphragm, huge breath, and then let everything in the day that wasn't ideal out. It's gone. No matter, no more there. All right. Think about love in all the forms that we get to have love in. Um, a pet, a place that we feel comfortable in, a book, a community, a friendship, maybe nature, faith, music, a partner. Now think about the strongest sense of love that you are feeling right now because you know that changes all the time. Hold it in your mind, hold it in your spirit, and let's just breathe with that love for a minute. Okay, one more deep breath. Exhale and open your eyes. This is the place you get to be in when you give and receive love. Miss Ann Lauren is an author and an activist with a Master of Theological Studies degree. She shares her story of childhood trauma and recovery through writing and public speaking as a medium to express the significant intersections and urgent demands between spirituality, psychology, healing, and justice on individual and collective levels. Anne's story has been published in print and digital magazines like Yes, Arcadia, 
Elite Daily, The Mighty, Ms. Magazine, and Elephant Journal. So thank you all for being here and I'm going to hand this over to Anne. Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining me today. So a quick content warning, I will be sharing the specific childhood trauma that I experienced was incest abuse. So I just invite you to take care of yourself in any way that you can. I know that is a sensitive subject. Today, I'm gonna to be talking about creating a culture of healing from victim survivor to love consciousness through my story, as well as through uh, systemic narratives. Love consciousness. Love consciousness is the unconditional source of love present in all living beings. It invites the existence and expression of our most integrated selves within the participation of thriving communities. The source of love consciousness is different for everyone and it is accessible all the time. Some people refer to love consciousness as God or the universe, um, but I prefer love, I prefer to call it love consciousness. So let me tell you first about how I first encountered love. When I was a little girl, I was, went to mass every Sunday with my Catholic family and I fell in love with the Catholic imagination. I loved the fact that Jesus saved me and that Mary mothered me and that the angels protected me and that the saints were my community of friends. It really juxtaposed the reality of my everyday life, which was really, really challenging and really lonely. At six months old, I had a, I had a surgery uh, to take out a part of my large intestine. And uh, until the age of five, I had a number of grand mal seizures. I couldn't trust my own body. And I was a very lonely child. Love consciousness showed up to me through the Catholic imagination because that was the context I was raised in. But again, love consciousness can show up for us in any way. <clears throat> When I was five, I had a particularly traumatic seizure where I did what I do best. I just kind of left my body. I spent time with, with this kind of spiritual imagination that I, or community I had created for myself. Um, and I asked them, I was like, Hey, I kind of want to kind of want to leave. Like life isn't good for me. I don't want to be here. And Jesus grabbed my hand and he said, Annie, you're welcome to die if you wish, but if you choose life, eventually it will be really beautiful. I chose life, I tumbled back in my body, and here I am today. It's not uncommon for children or people who grow up in really, or, or live in really traumatic environments to create an imagination where love and safety is real, even if their physical experience isn't. There's controversy to whether or not these experiences are actually real, right? Whether Jesus actually held my hand, or if it's just a figment of my imagination. I choose to believe that it doesn't matter, that it worked. I'm still here because love consciousness saved me. Viktor Frankl has a similar experience. Viktor Frankl is a survivor of the Holocaust and the founder of existential psychology. During the Holocaust, the way he survived was by imagining his wife. He loved her so much and he spent time in his mind with her every day in order to survive. He says, for the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which we can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of humans is through love and in love. Love consciousness ended up accompanying me through much more difficult tragedies than illness. It turns out that victimization was a lifestyle in my family system. 
I moved out of my family home at 18 and immediately started to suffer from psychosomatic symptoms. My brain, body, and being started shutting down and I had no idea why. By the time I was 22, I was nearly catatonic. I landed back in my childhood bed. I could hardly function. I started seeing doctors and going to therapists and seeing spiritual directors to help unpack the trauma of my, the hidden trauma of my past. And by 24, I was in graduate school. I had distance from my family and financial security separate from my father. And in that culture of safety was able to uncover memories of incest. I was sexually abused by three men in my family numerous times throughout my life. Rape, especially during childhood, can be a life or a death sentence. What I mean when I say that is that the consequences of that much trauma on a child will uh, have lasting impact on their health, or it can also increase the risk of suicide. My brain split into compartments where unprocessed trauma could rest, um, and that is called complex PTSD. My body suffered from psychosomatic pain that tr had trauma trapped like trapped trauma energy in my muscles. And that was why my body shut down. And my being felt a sense of despair from being exploited by the people who were supposed to love me for too long. My consciousness split just like my brain. A part of me held victim consciousness, a part of me held survivor consciousness, and a part of me held perpetrator consciousness. And I had to manage all three. Beginning with perpetrator consciousness. Perpetrators are taught to believe that life is about exploiting other living beings for personal gain. There are three ways in which we interact with the world. Our intrapersonal experience, the relationship with ourselves, our interpersonal experience, our relationship with others, and our institutional experience, our relationship with organizations. For perpetrators, they believe that they have all the power and that they deserve to be served by others. Their interpersonal experience, their relationship with community is that they deserve to have their needs met by others, by the environment, regardless of the cost on those people and the environment. And their institutional relationship is that they are infallible and the systems that are built either support their infallibility or they do not hold their infallibility accountable. Continuing the cycle of violence. Victim consciousness is the exact opposite. It limits life to survival mode. The relationship I had with myself as a victim was that I believed that I was the problem because that's what my perpetrator told me. My relationship with others is that I was constantly responsible for managing the problem. And my relationship with institutions was either that no one could help me or that I needed to be saved by someone outside of myself. All those narratives at a time in my life were true. Survivor consciousness is about deconstructing the problem and reconstructing the solution. It happens once you're able to find your way out and or the energy that helps you to survive during victimization. It, it also um, can help um, support perpetration patterns in systems where in order to survive or to thrive, you need to be at the top of the privileged pyramid. As a survivor, after I left my family system, I learned to believe that I was not the problem. Instead, I am, and I entered into the process of rebuilding my identity. My relationships with others 
related around me choosing to be a part of the solution while I had to commit to healing the consequences the problem had on me while I also was creating a system of safety. Way too much work for one person. My institutional relationship is the confidence that I can save myself and I can have uh, get help in that process. So as we all know from the wonderful feminists that have fought for the rights of women throughout history, the personal is the political. I am not the only one who has suffered from exploitation. We know that white supremacist, cishet normative, ableist patriarchal violence has been ruling the world for centuries. And the, the reason they've gotten away with this for so long is because they've created a culture of perpetration that continues cycles of violence. They glorify the exploitation of vulnerable populations. If they don't glorify it, then they justify it. They give us excuses and reasons to why it's happening and or they don't hold them accountable to correct behavior. Solutions like empathy and forgiveness and compassion can be used within the cycle of violence framework to, twisted in order to stop accountability cycles and continue perpetration cycles. That is also how normalization of violence occurs. Because it's been happening for so long, populations become desensitized to violence. We, our brains learn cognitive dissonance that we must belong in order to survive. We must participate in order to survive. Eventually that becomes internalized. We believe that the perpetration isn't the problem, but that we are the problem. The victims, the communities who are, um, who are vulnerable to patriarchal violence become the problem. Like they are taught that they are the problem. And then stigmatization. Any effort to heal, to help, to resolve, to break the cycle is all stigmatized. We see that within communities about the stigmatizations around therapy, for example. In a cycle of violence, the relationship to power within communities is the power over and the power under. There is the oppressed and then the, uh, the oppressor. And again, this doesn't just happen on the individual level, but it happens on systemic levels. Systemic injustice is normal and um, common in so many communities. I'm gonna to focus today on just talking about uh, systemic injustice within the rape recovery movement. Within rape recovery, uh, rape remains the least reported and least criminalized crime. Three out of four rape cases go unreported and only five out of 1,000 perpetrators are incarcerated of those cases that are reported. Systemic funding for rape recovery centers only covers short-term solutions to, to long-term problems. They offer rape kits, which are really excellent for single incident rapes, but obviously would not help me as someone who was raped as a child. Um, but we know that those rape kits are often backlogged so that nothing is done with them. They offer legal services, which again is excellent if you have evidence and you can participate and there aren't statute of limitation laws which limit you to tell your story. But again, what we, we have the evidence that once we once survivors enter this enter into the system, that it's very rare um, for them to actually receive justice and that the cross-examination process can be so re-traumatizing that it's that it is not worth it, continuing to marginalize survivors from getting help. Lastly, they offer short-term counseling 
again, excellent service, but rape is a, is a lifelong sentence and we need long-term counseling and support. Third, the severity of the problem worsens with increased vulnerability of the population. One in three women are sexually abused within their lifetime, uh, white women, excuse me. One in two Native American women are sexually abused within their lifetime. We know that perpetrators uh, choose people who are vulnerable so that one, they don't tell, and two, if they do tell, they won't be listened to. So the trans community is particularly vulnerable to rape. The LGBTQ community is particularly vulnerable to rape. Uh, the people of color are particularly vulnerable to rape and children lastly are particularly vulnerable to rape. It is proven that 93% of children who are sexually abused and report the crime knew their perpetrator, which tells me that a lot of people share the same, my story, which is that incest, that sexual violence is prominent and happening in the family system, um, even though uh, that, the, that incest remains a taboo within our culture and our society and was hardly uh, covered within the hashtag MeToo uh, movement and the media representation of it. We also lack communal validation and social support. Incest survivors have the same uh, neurological symptoms as genocide survivors and as prisoners of war. The difference between them and us is that they have, com they have communities that say we suffered too, we suffered with you, and we understand. Where incest survivors and sexual assault survivors are often abused behind closed doors, and then when they come out and share their story, they are gaslighted, they are questioned, they come up with social stigmatizations, um, and they, they are called liars. We lack the communal validation needed for healing. So we have to free ourselves. When I was 24 years old, I shared my family history with my family and, or excuse me, my history of incest with my family and was immediately abandoned. Not an uncommon story for incest survivors. They chose the patriarch. As I learned um, to, um, as I learned, uh, as I came forward more with my story, I, I learned that generational incest was a real problem, that I wasn't the only victim, and this had been happening for generations. As I tried to heal, I began to confront the institutional betrayals that I just spoke of. I am now 34 years old. I am proud to have survived, um, but in the last 10 years, I have been forced to rebuild my family system, find healing modalities to manage and heal my trauma as well as intergenerational trauma, the trauma of my ancestors and remain uh, economically stable at the same time. It's been way too much and way too hard. I should never have had to do it alone. We have such amazing community models of liberation and I wanna thank these communities because incest is such a hidden story and such a hidden community of isolation, I studied uh, other communities of liberation that helped teach me how to liberate myself. C current contemporary um, movements are the Black Lives Matter movement that is deconstructing white supremacist patriarchy and demanding dignity for the black community. The hashtag MeToo movement that is deconstructing the exploitation of people's bodies and reconstructing consent culture. The LGBTQIA plus movement, which is deconstructing cisgendered heteronormative realities and asking for free gender and sex expression and the stop hate Asian hate movement, which is deconstructing the lies started by a patriarchal president um, and reconstructing the reality that Asian Americans deserve to be safe and are not responsible for the global pandemic. 
What we do when we liberate ourselves is we have to create cultures of safety. And what we do when we do that is we create a culture of, of justice, creating a cycle of safety, excuse me. So glorification becomes cancellation. We have um, had a pendulum that swings way too far to one side that's been allowing violence for way too long. So we swing it in the other direction and we say to people, no more, right? We are not going to allow perpetrated behavior anymore. It is a quick correction to tip society in the other direction. Instead of um, justification of violence, we now have justice as a punishment for violence. Instead of normalization of violence, we have accountability as calling out violence between people. Instead of the internalization of violence, we have the externalization of violence and the invitation to heal as a solution. And we have, instead of the stigmatization of healing resources and liberation methods and advocacy, we begin to be safe to advocate for systemic support where we can educate people on cycles of safety as well as methodologies of healing. In this model, the power dynamic is shifted. So now the oppressed populations have power over where the oppressed, where the, the people who have been, have been oppressors are now underneath the power of the oppressed. I loved poet Amanda Gorman's recent um, poem that she read, we've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace and that the norms and notions of what just is, isn't always justice. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. So my question is, how do we finish the job? How do we complete ourselves? our systems and our relationships to be as full and as free as possible. And I argue that we do it through love consciousness. The reality is safety is just our foundation of our life. It is not the fulfillment of our life. I should have been born in a safe environment. We should all have been born in a safe world. For those of us that weren't, we have to create that for ourselves. We have to grieve the fact that we are born in violent systems and do the work and then realize that there's so much more for us than just safety. What love consciousness does is it helps me to dream of a reality where there aren't power dynamics, where instead of having power over or power under, we have power with. That we can be, that we drop the title of oppressor and oppressed, we drop the behaviors and beliefs of the oppressor and oppressed, and we become whole individuals within integrated communities. Think of it like a big hug, right? Like love consciousness holds it all. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. And this is what we must see as we move on. We must see love win. In love consciousness, the narrative for yourself is that we as a community are not the problem, but instead beliefs and behaviors we were all taught are the problem. Our interpersonal relationships empower us to understand that we are capable of solving the problem, healing from the problem, and creating better solutions together. From an institutional perspective, we learn through love consciousness that our oppressed parts need to listen and our, and our oppressor parts need to learn to speak so that we can fully comprehend the complexity of injustice and what it does to us as communities and then rebuild systems of support that create and honor those complexities. Here we have a cycle of peace. 
love consciousness invites us to establish a culture of healing. In a culture of healing, cancellation becomes trauma-informed competency. Cancellation does a great job in doing a quick fix, but it doesn't hold the complexity of the narrative. My father was a rapist. My father was also a victim. He too was raised in a situation where he was unsafe and he became an unsafe person. And the system failed him just as much as the system failed me. My father is the reason for my pain, my disability. He is also the reason for immense amount of privilege. I grew up five miles from the beach. I was publicly, I was privately educated my entire life. There are privileges that I will never lose because he worked so hard to ensure I had them. I need people to understand the, the complexity of trauma, especially intergenerational trauma, when generations before us have not had as many healing resources accessible to them. They have not had the language, the capacity to understand their own relationship to their pain so that we can hold the complexity of all we are together and heal each other. But that is not without boundaries. Compassion never excuses the need for safety. So our conflict in a culture of healing is resolved not through justice as punishment, but instead through boundaries and appropriate systems of accountability. We can create a justice system that honors the fact that people's behaviors and beliefs will change over time. We can create spaces of safety that honor the dignity of perpetrators as they learn to heal themselves and keep them isolated for com from communities so we ensure the community remains safe as they are learning. There is never a reason in any case to rob a human of their dignity. No matter what they have done, a cycle, and a cycle of peace and a culture of healing will always honor the dignity of every, in, of every person in the room. A culture of healing believes in the beliefs and, and uh, of the transformation of beliefs and behaviors in every individual. But again, it also acknowledges the complexity of mental health. There are always going to be people like my father who refuse to acknowledge how violent they are and continue to believe that they have the right to be exploitative. Again, those people need to be isolated from society while we continue to uh, prioritize safety and their dignity needs to continue to remain intact. We can treat them well. They deserve a space in life in the world where they can be alone and so they can't hurt anyone without being uh, continuing the cycle of violence, without continuing to punish them. In a cycle of violence and a culture of healing, we honor that healing is a communal process, not just an individual process. There is no point in me going to therapy every single day to then heal and enter a community that is not trauma-informed, a community that is sick, a community that is unjust. It will just continue to trigger me and keep me in, in, a, in a trauma cycle. So we have to acknowledge that we must heal as individuals and we must heal as communities and that we can do so together. We are not abused in vacuums and nor can we heal in vacuums. As we are healing, we can continue to create systemic supports that honor the dignity of all people. From everyone in our society, again, deserves a place in, a, a place in, our, in the systems that we create and they deserve to be safe and they deserve their dignity to be upheld. 
I understand the reality of collective consciousness that right now, so many of us hold the reality of perpetrator, victim and survivor consciousness. And the reality isn't that we are one or the other or the other. The reality is, is that we all hold these consciousnesses. We all operate from them. Even the perpetrator consciousness, we, the system is built on exploitative perpetration. So in order to get in my car every day, I have to use gas, which is exploitative to the environment, right? In order to go to the grocery store, I often have to buy food that is exploitative to community, that has come from the exploitation of communities. We have to honor the complexity that this system has created these levels of consciousness for us. And we have to insist on our own transformation. What I love about love consciousness is, is that it has the capacity to teach us to hold everything we have been, everything we are, and everything we can be, while we continue to create better individuals, better relationships, and better systems. We can create love as a lifestyle. And the way that I recommend we begin is by doing the exercise that we began today. Start with your imagination. Start with remembering every day where love is strongest in your life. Let it fill up your body. Let it fill your mind. Let it fill your being. Choose and commit to it. You may have found that even in that short meditation, your brain calmed down. Your body came back to a center of pleasure and your being felt hope. Together, we can build a better world. Imagine that if we've had the capacity to hold so much trauma for so long, just think of all the love that we could hold together. Think every day of how you can create from an interpersonal, an intrapersonal, and an institutional perspective. Find that love that exists within yourself, that essence that belongs in other people, and in systems. And let's hold each other, cling to each other, and continue to teach until we become the majority and everything else it becomes uh, enters into a cycle of healing. Thank you so much. I know that was a lot. <laughs> um, I'm so grateful. I will never honor uh, the, I will never glorify the violence in my childhood. I will never say I'm grateful for the incest, but I am certainly grateful for who I've become in spite of my history. And I'm so grateful that you showed up today to listen to me. Um, you can review the rest of my portfolio at annmlauren.com. I'm on so all social media platforms at annmlauren. And if you want more information on incest in particular, incestaware.org is an excellent um, resource website. Thank you so much. Wow. All right, everybody, let's take another deep breath. Think about that for a minute. I can identify in myself where I am in all those cycles um, and I may choose to share that or not, but um, thank you, Anne. That was amazing. And I have a lot of kind of ideas and vocabulary now that I wanna really explore. So I appreciate that. Okay. So we have some questions going on. Um, do you have an idea of statistics for rape of women of color, especially black women? I don't, not off the top of my head. Um, you can look it up. The problem with statistics in the rape recovery community, in my personal opinion, uh, is that because it's the, the least reported um, problem in, in society, the statistics we have are, are kind of estimated guesses. Rape has been a huge issue within the black community um, for 
ever, um, but especially obviously the rape against uh, during slavery um, and that rape was really like an institutionalized um, to for, by white men against black women to create more slaves, which was incredibly unjust. Um, I also wanted to say, which I appreciate you bringing this up that I missed is that um, black women have actually been the strongest advocates within the rape recovery movement and the anti-rape movement throughout history. Um, so just, I wanna really thank the black, uh, black women in the black community um, for doing that. Um, there are really some excellent black advocates um, who are survivors, one in particular who I'd recommend, uh, her name is uh, Cheyenne uh, Taylor, Tyler Jacobs. Um, and one thing she said on a call recently that I really loved was, um, if white women aren't being listened to, why would we be listened to? Um, so there is definitely, um, there are layers of privilege, even kind of within the rape recovery movement um, that, that or intersectional feminism is really challenging so that we can um, become more equitable and create more healing for populations that have been more vulnerable like the black community has. Along the similar vein, we had the question of what about statistics for women who are fat or disabled? Yeah, great question. And again, um, thank you for these. And I'll do, I'll, I'll make sure to prepare myself better next time. So I have more specific statistics. Um, the disabled community is particularly vulnerable to sexual violence. So again, I would say like kind of on the, on like the vulnerable pyramid, they would be right above children. Um, it, and obviously depending on um, their, the level of, of disability and how it affects them, but anyone who is dependent on someone else to care for them is going to be more um, vulnerable to exploitation. Um, a great advocate in the disability community um, for rape or anti-rape is Charlotte Lozano. Um, she has a organization called Charlotte's Mission and she does a lot of advocacy work. Um, she has cerebral palsy and does a lot of advocacy work about um, keeping people with disabilities safe. And for um, people who are um, of a different weight, I'm sorry, I don't have statistics for that and I would love to do some research. Okay. I, I will say just my commentary, a lot of these statistics are going to be very difficult to find. Yeah, frankly. there's data gaps. There's so many data gaps. And if you do find statistics, make sure to research the background of the statistics because you'll notice that they're like kind of funky. Like even the ones I used, I don't love um, because like the one in three women who are raped in their lifetime, there's like an age limit. Like there's so many stories that are left out of these statistics. So just go think, you know, bring your critical mind into these processes because I just don't, I don't think the statistics are that accurate. <laughs> okay, thank you for that information. Um, it seems like providing space for perpetrators to change beliefs and behavior is the sort of the true meaning of forgiveness. Can you comment on this? Yeah, that's a good question. So forgiveness, I think is a very complex subject because I grew up in a Catholic home, um, forgiveness was used as a weapon in my home. When I told my parents, um, when I told my mother that my father had sexually abused me, her response was, well, you should just forgive him. That's what God wants you to do. So the reason I break out um, kind of the process of healing into stages is because we have to create boundaries um, of safety before we, before we forgive. Um, or before we find like narratives of compassion, if we, if we um, forgive before we've created safety, then the cycle of violence is just going to continue, right? So we have to, true forgiveness 
is going to hold the abuser accountable, demand an apology, and then the survivor like really like um, kind of pay and support the survivor's healing process and then allow the survivor the freedom to choose whether or not they want to reconcile with their perpetrator. That can never be forced and should never be expected. So I'm cautious with the word forgiveness because it's used, I think it's been used throughout history as a weapon against survivors to um, allow perpetrators to not be held accountable. Um, I think it also in a sense like keeps the survivor really focused on the perpetrator opposed to the survivor just focusing on themselves and like doing what's ever best for themselves. So I have kind of my own forgiveness story, which I'm happy to share at some point. Um, that's a, a bit more nuanced than like, oh, I just forgave my father. Um, but I, I like to honor personally, both like the spiritual need for salvation or for forgiveness in order to heal, but also like the social complexities of forgiveness. Um, and to let survivors choose whatever is best for them, never to expect or to um, require survivors to forgive. Um, when I mean, when I say like perpetrators need to heal, that's not on, that's not the survivor's job, right? Like I'm not involved in my father's life. Like he's not in my life. He likely never will be. That's his job. We should have systemic supports that, um, that, that make him heal himself, right? Like that's what justice would be for me. Um, would would be to know that other children are safe and that um, and that he he is in programs that are helping him become a better human. Uh, but that's not on the survivor to do that. Thank you. Gosh, you are just answering questions so completely. I love it. I'm really um, I'm sorry. There's I'd never want to reduce this narrative. It's so complex. So I appreciate you guys listening to so much information. But I'd rather give them too much information than not enough information. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say this particular group of people is not afraid to think. Great. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Where does anger fit into these cycles? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, so anger is like a really natural part of the healing process. Um, if you're a victim, anger is, is often not available to you, right? Like you have to repress any level of emotional expression. So within your survivor consciousness, that's when all the anger releases. And you're like, I always say, engage your rage. Like it, rage is so important. It's a natural response. If it's been buried in your body, it's likely going to come out really big. The question that I think, well, how love helps me hold my anger and rage is by saying you can feel it, but make sure you direct that energy in ways that bring about peace. So I am never violent, right? Uh, that, that, that rage is never directed into violence. It can be directed into boundaries. It can be directed into advocacy. It can be directed into intimacy with friends and like letting it out or in therapy offices or in screaming into pillows or I'm an open water swimmer. So I just go and scream in the ocean because nobody can hear me. Like whatever you need to do, um, find outlets of your anger that are healthy and healing and releasing, but also, um, lead to peace, not to, to, to continuing cycles of violence. Awesome. Um, we have an interesting question here. I'm fascinated by your concept of blending of perpetrator, victim, and survivor consciousness. It seems like a yin and yang, which I can grasp in balancing two forces. But this idea of consciousness sounds like a more challenging issue, kind of a three-dimensional issue. Is there a balance or how do you see these interacting together? Oh, so 
fun, you guys. Great questions. Um, yeah, so there's a really awesome um, psychological framework called Internal Family Systems. I recommend you, you check it out. Uh, complex PTSD splits the brain, like I said, into like a number of personalities. And the personalities are often representations of undeveloped trauma at different ages. Um, if the splits become really bad, then people are often diagnosed with um, DID, which is Dissociative Identity Disorder. So um, we have a, a history of, um, of dualism in our culture, kind of like socially, culturally, religiously, where we just want to like say everything is black and white or yin and yang or good and evil. The reality is, is human consciousness is so much more complex than that. And nobody knows that better than trauma survivors because we hold all this consciousness all the time. Um, Internal Family Systems does an excellent job normalizing that. It says that everyone has kind of a committee in their heads, right? Like we all have different voices that motivate our decisions. Um, for a complex, someone with complex PTSD, those voices just get really strong and they're really intense and they're really like hard to manage. It's like having a bunch of toddlers in your brain all at the same time. Um, so you, you learn like tools um, to kind of honor your, your, your centered sense of self and to direct and hold these various forms of consciousness within your body um, while you control, again, how you act. The problem is never like what's going on inside of you, right? Like we have the freedom to do whatever and to think whatever and to be whatever on the inside. The question is like, how, what are we choosing to bring into the world? Uh, and then kind of a multi-consciousness approach, I think is, is more realistic at least to my experience and the experience of trauma survivors. And the reality is, is so many of us are traumatized. The more we can hold the complexities of multi, like kind of multi-consciousness, um, I think the more we're gonna, we're gonna find uh, multi-modality solutions that help us to solve our problems. Okay. We have a question about the trans community. Mm -hmm. The trans community literally learns to survive rape and abuse almost every day. Yeah. How can they learn to love when that trauma is so sort of omnipresent? Um, how can they learn to love? Um, did they, okay. Like big concept love. Um, so yes, I, I, my, again, going back to kind of my own experience with love consciousness, like incest, illness, patriarchal white supremacist ideology, like ruled the first 20 years of my life. Um, and again, the way that I managed that was I created a world of safety in my imagination and I disassociated, right? That's kind of the psychological term. I depersonalized. Um, I spent all this time in my mind um, <clears throat> until I could find a culture of safety. Once I found a culture of safety, I was able to start discerning like who's safe and who's not, right? Like who reflects the love that I am experiencing from love consciousness in my imagination and who doesn't have the tools. And in order to heal myself, I, I kind of kept myself in like really strong, I had really strong boundaries for a really long time where I only let in people who were really capable of showing me love, of healing love in me. It's so true that people who grow up traumatized, like we don't have models of love in our life, right? So people say things like, you just have to love yourself before you can love others. I didn't have a model of love. I didn't know what love was. So if, if I believe that love exists uh, in some people and in some community and in some systems. So if you have the power and the privilege to create the, as strong of boundaries as you can to only let 
the love in the people who have the pa- the capacity to love and to try your best to um to kind of keep out any other perpetration behaviors so that you can really fill yourself up with love that would be my advice but i also understand and i want to hold the complexity of the trans community and other communities who are continue to be perpetrated all the time um, and that often the only place we can connect with love is in some kind of spiritual ethereal world, which makes me so sad. Like that's not the point of life. The point of life is to experience love here. And I, I unfortunately think that uh, that experience is, is really ruined for a lot of populations because of violence um, and hope that, that whoever we are, that we, and wherever we are and however we are raised, that we can we can find that source of love in the meantime until we create better people and better systems that better love us. But I'm so sorry if, if you're someone who is trans and experiences the amount of violence you do, it's not, it's not right. I personally have a question about um, the role of creative expression in moving between, as you kind of pass around victim to survivor to love consciousness, where does creative expression move in there? There's a lot of creative folks on this call. Oh, I love that question. Um, yeah, so, you know, um, again, uh, I think that a part of the patriarchy, right, is that it loves to compartmentalize and oversimplify things. And so we have been taught that like the right, there's like the right brain and there's the left brain and there's a creative side and there's a rational side. And that we are either, again, like victims perpetrators or survivors. None of that is true, right? Like the brain is super complex. We know very little about it. Um, we, we hold numbers of consciousnesses. And again, we hold kind of patterns of all of these different types of consciousness all at the same time. What's so great about creativity is that it stimulates the subconscious, like more than anything else, like dreams and creativity is when you can speak to your subconscious the best. Um, so like I picked up abstract painting at some point, um, I was in the design industry for a long time. Like while I was literally designing my life, like there's something about the creative process that's really important to, um, getting what's hidden to be unhidden, which is such an integral part of healing. So whenever you feel the urge to create in whatever way that is, do it, like commit to it, but then also invest in it as a therapeutic process, like then go back and be like, what does that mean? What did I just create? I painted once this picture and it was totally abstract. And then I took a picture of it and put it on Instagram. And my friend was like, I see a woman who's like holding her knees crying. And I didn't see her until my friend said that, but she was there. It was this very clear picture of this woman crying. And I was like, oh my God, I, my, my brain made that for me, (laughs) you know? Um, so creativity is a really excellent healing modality and I recommend it in whatever way you're attracted to, to go for it. Awesome. And I keep saying awesome because it is in fact awesome. (laughs) Um, I have a question about, um, I personally have moved through the, the small traumas that I've had in my life and I'm in a good place right now. But there are people in my life who, well, yeah, and there are people in my life who are either on the journey or something is actively badly happening to them. As an ally to them, as an ally to that person, how do I create a sense of safety and love for that person? That is a beautiful question. Um, So one thing I'm most grateful for in my own healing process is the capacity that 
other friends that I had in my life had to hold me in my healing space. Um, I am because I was both epileptic and um, had um, incest trauma. My, my brain is hyper emotional like that. I need a lot of emotional um, holding in my life. Um, and the reality is, is that therapy is just too expensive. <laughs> like I can't just go to therapy a few days a week, you know? So I, I attracted these friends who like have this really beautiful capacity to just hold all of me um, and to let me show up however I show up and to just hold space for me. Um, and so I, I, I recommend that you learn how to do that. And trauma, and there's lots of trauma-informed uh, resources now, especially post hashtag me too, a lot of free resources to learn how to better hold space for people who are hurting. Uh, I really believe in, again, creating a culture of healing that we shouldn't just be healing with our therapists. We should be healing with each other. Um, and that my healing is going to stimulate your healing and your healing is going to stimulate someone else's healing. And we're just going to keep bouncing through each other. Um, so learn to hold again, the complexities of other people's trauma in, in your body, which might not know those complexities. Uh, that that's, that's a huge um, kind of modality in itself is, com again, communal validation. I love that. So I've asked in the chat if anybody would like to share or comment before we adjourn. We have some time. I present a lot for my job, and I'd like to become more trauma-informed in my facilitation style. Can you recommend any tools, resources, or thought leaders to help us hold for trauma when we speak or present to others? Yeah, uh, so incestaware.org is a, is a website that my friend built who's a survivor, but I helped her. So there's a lot of really great resources there. Um, check that out. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk is a um, pretty famous uh, trauma um, writer. He, he wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score. So that's a really good um, way to just competently understand like the complexities of trauma on the system. Uh, Judith Herman wrote a book called Trauma and Recovery, uh, which really talks about like the history of trauma and kind of where we've been and where we are. Um, and then uh, if you just Google like trauma informed resources, you'll find like trauma informed yoga therapists and trauma informed um, education. And there's like, it's really hot right now. <laughs> so jump on the train, you know, like you'll find something. There are so many resources, but those are a few if I hope, I hope they're helpful. Do you think if someone is standing in front of a room and obviously you have no idea the experiences of the folks you're speaking with and you're asking them to take chances or change or, uh, you know, challenge their own belief systems, what are some ways in which you can provide a safe and comfortable environment for folks who maybe are a little closer to the victim side than the love side? Um. Okay, I'm a little confused. In the beginning, I thought I was kind of under the impression I was talking that the person presenting would be talking to perpetrators, like people who needed to change their beliefs. But then at the end, it sounded like the audience is actually I'm talking to victims. Can you clarify? Instead of thinking about it that way, think about I'm talking to 100 okay. people. And in that group, there are going to be perpetrators yeah. and victims and every mix in between. Right. And what usually happens when you facilitate with that is you get a certain group of people who always participate and a certain group of people who never participate. And a lot of times it may have something to do with personal experience. So my thought is, how are we as facilitators looking at strangers, providing a space where those folks would feel safe to participate? Okay, thank you for the clarification. Um, so. 
what I, I really love the framework, um, brave space, not like there's the difference between brave space and safe space. Um, and so it kind of depends on, you know, the environment of the group talk. Um, this to me is brave space, right? Like I'm telling a hard story. This story might make people uncomfortable. Um, the whole point of me telling the story is to like maybe call people out or to advocate for, to break taboos. Like um, talks about justice and injustice and discrimination and violence aren't always gonna feel safe. Like that's just true. Um, and that's what brave space is. And so hopefully people have consented to coming into a conversation of brave space in advance. Um, with safe space, uh, that's really different, right? And a safe space, I think, generally needs to be much smaller groups or even one-on-one. -on -one. Um, a lot of rape recovery communities do these like group survivor circles, right? Where safe space is about validating whatever comes out of people's mouth and validating people's experience and making sure that people's nervous systems stay really calm. It's a really different process. Um, something about at least being a survivor that was in hiding for a long time is that like, I will not go to places where I feel that I am required to sit in brave space if I am not prepared for that. Um, and so there, I think there's a point too of, of like, hopefully trusting your audience um, and, then, and then guiding and facilitating your audience. Um, there might be people who have gone through things who are a little less aware of themselves and might have a really big trigger reaction and need to need to leave the room. Um, if you ever have like generally like survivor circles or, or like recovery organizations, they have like therapists on hand um, in the case that people get really triggered that people can go to, or they have like alone rooms where you can go and like heal and process your trauma. Those are really great tools to just help um, survivors have the environment to do whatever they need to do in order to take care of themselves if they're really triggered. Awesome. That's a great idea that I would guess many of us have never thought of. Mm -hmm. All right. This is going to be our last question before we sign off. Um, what are some ways to really find a support group that you can actually trust for other forms of trauma? Um, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because we can't afford therapy usually because of health insurance. Right. And you also may not want to just advertise, hey, I'm a survivor of this. Right. Please talk to me. Yeah. That's a, good, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, if you have access to the internet, I would start um, with um, just going on to, to, if you are on social platforms or if you, if you can Google support groups with whatever um, kind of your, your type of victimization is. Um, I don't, because I don't know what your type of victimization is, it'll just depend on like how available those support groups are. Um, you might be surprised that there are things that already exist. Um, if not, I would recommend doing what I did, which is what a lot of people do. Like I just, there are rape recovery circles. I just chose not to participate in them probably because I needed to feel I had control. So I just started my own. Um, I started like opening up to just save people in my life. Um, and in doing so, um, continue to meet other people like me or like found, you know, again, found people online or whatnot, um, and then learn to trust them. Trust is not ever something that you assume, right? Trust is always built. Uh, so it just takes, it takes time and it takes trial and error. Just like it can be so frustrating finding the right therapist, same story, like finding the right friends, finding the right romantic partner or a number of romantic partners, whatever, like, um, it takes time and effort and energy, and it can be really depleting on people who have to, who work really hard to have to put themselves out there. Um, but I just encourage you to keep trying and, and to keep, to keep 
asking love consciousness to bring you someone, uh, even if it's just one person to begin with, and then hopefully that support group will spread. Awesome. Thank you everyone for joining LEAD. I hope that you are filled with a little more love and let's all hit the ground running tomorrow and bring some love and peace to the world. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for coming. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning into this special episode on the Leading People First podcast, where Anne could share more of her story and teach us about love consciousness in the Leaders for Equity Allyship and Diversity group. We hope you can join us next time live as we come together to learn, activate, and empower to make a difference in the world. Again, we meet on Thursdays at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. You can find the group and the next event on LinkedIn. If you'd like more information, feel free to reach out to me directly. All of the group information and my own information is down below in the show notes. Don't forget to click that subscribe button to hear more of our conversations moving forward. And be sure to share this episode for anyone who might want to learn more about love consciousness. We're so excited that you've joined us in this movement. Let's go out into this world and lead together and stay awesome.